0: A warning. This episode includes descriptions of violence against women. A listener production. Welcome to Real Crime, Australian Detectives. I'm your host, Adam Shand. Peter Norris Dupass is a depraved and cunning serial killer. Dupass murdered up to six women, possibly more. He's serving three life sentences with no hope of release. Murders without motive are the hardest to solve. And the investigation into Dupas continues. Dupas was locked up for the murder of Nicole Patterson in April 1999. Investigators linked him to other killings through the injuries suffered by the victims, which spoke to DuPass's psychosexual motivation and his hatred of women. Victorian homicide detective Jeff Maher brought Dupas back to court for the murder of 25-year-old Mercena Halvagas in November 1997. Using evidence gathered by Maher's team, detectives are working on Dupas for three other killings. Maher is now a trainer and mentor to this new generation of investigators seeking justice on behalf of the victims and their
1: families. Jeff Marr is my guest today. Thank you very much, Adam. Tell me, how did you first get involved in the police? I applied to go to the army as an officer and I applied for VicPol as a police cadet. In 1973, I got selected and uh, went into the depot in St Kilda Road. And what were your ambitions back then? A lot of people go into the force for different reasons, but I think you were born detective. I always was keen on becoming a detective and I think, uh, you know, I was only in the job four years and I became a detective constable, so I was pretty enthralled with that sort of side of uh, policing and, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's turned out to be uh, the greatest show on earth, really, uh, you know, a ringside seat of the greatest show on earth. Yeah. Um, Brian Francis Murphy, who we both know, gave you high praise. He you said you're an independent
0: thinker oh, about <laughs> evidence.
1: What does he mean? Oh, uh, Analyze things. Don't discard them. Make sure that you chase every rabbit down every burrow. Make sure that you shut off that line of inquiry, and uh, you know it is completed. And don't assume things. You know, make sure that you check all the facts out. Make sure that you absolutely cover all the bases. And uh, you know, I've been pretty happy with the way my career's gone. It's been it's been good. Right.
0: I think people know you for your work in
1: homicide.
0: Was that the pinnacle,
1: or do people possibly glamorize the homicide detective? What did it mean for you? I never went there as a detective, senior constable or detective sergeant. I went there as a senior sergeant, which was rare to happen. I spent 15 years at homicide. They were the absolutely the pinnacle of my career without a doubt. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the thrill of the chase. I enjoyed solving crimes and you know, murders the ultimate crime. And uh, I enjoyed the camaraderie, the teamwork, getting a good bunch of detectives around you and just solving the crimes. So detectives and your sergeants in charge of a crew at the Homicide Squad are basically the investigation managers. So at that point in time, I had two sergeants and eight detectives on my crew. You'd manage the investigations. You know, you'd be over the top. You'd give your detectives that you selected give them their space and get them to investigate those crimes. And you would come in and you would be the leader and guide and mentor and, uh, you know, maybe direct them. But at the end of the day, the senior sergeants would do a brief of evidence for fatal police shootings of a member of the public by police officers and also the murders of police officers as well. And I did about four or five uh, fatal police shootings involving citizens. Sounds like a lot of desk work to me. No, it isn't. It's um, not? No, no. The role of, of the DWS at the uh, Homicide Squad was uh, probably the most operational senior sergeant in the job because you get out to all the scenes, you know, you'd be feet on the ground with the troops. So how many
0: homicide investigations did you work on in your career?
1: Over the 15 years, I probably did about... 200 homicide prosecutions as the investigations manager, probably another 40 or 50 on top of that. Whatever crew you were on, I was initially on crew four, I went to crew one. Um, you'd inherit the unsolves, so we'd review unsolved crimes that you weren't actually at this scene initially, but you would inherit that job and that you would reinvestigate and put fresh eyes over the investigation. So of those
0: investigations, how many do you actually remember? I mean, Messina Vargas we'll talk about.
1: Was that one of the really memorable ones or uh, which ones stick in your mind? Without a doubt, the prosecution of Peter Norris due pass for, uh, you know, the murder of Nicky Passon initially and then the other murders, uh, yeah, it does. It stayed with me for a long time and it even stayed with me until nearly up to my retirement because of the property involved in the job and the investigation file. You have to have all your, your ducks in a row and all your books in order before you can retire and get your money. So, uh, you know, 2016 and I was... Still reminded of it. And that had been going for a decade or more for you? Uh, 1999 till 2016, so what, 17 years, yeah. I was on call, the on-call senior sergeant for a Monday night on the 19th of April, 1999. Got a call from uh, D24, I think it might have even been a pager call, and uh, called the online supervisor at D24 that in fact there was a possible homicide out in Northcote. So I called up uh, my sergeant at the time, who was uh, uh, Dave Snare, uh, now retired, a great guy. We went out and triaged the investigation and it turned out to be the murder of uh, Nikki Patterson. Who was Nikki Patterson? Nikki Patterson was murdered. Uh, she was the last of Dupass's victims, but the first arrest. So he murdered uh, Nikki Patterson. And then uh, as a result of being prosecuted for that, he got life no minimum. Then we worked backwards from that particular investigation in 1999 back to the other jobs that we thought. And the jobs is is just a term, it's not a derogatory term, but just jobs that he might have committed other murders. So, and we worked backwards. Nikki Patterson's uh, murder, our crew was so much under the pump at that point in time that I actually took on uh, the role of informant of that investigation because usually senior sergeants don't become informants in matters uh, and I took that on site unseen because our crew had a lot on, a lot of Bruce to prepare, a lot of trials running, a lot of investigations so I took the tide unseen. Myself and Paul Scarlett, uh, who's now a senior sergeant of the Homicide Squad, he was a senior constable at the time. We ran with that investigation with other members of the crew. Uh, Steve Mitchell, now retired as well. But anyway, we ran with that job. Uh, we secured a conviction against uh, Dupas uh, for Nikki Patterson um, and then we started to look at other jobs.
0: There were some signature moves for Dupass in his murders. What did you see in Nikki Patterson which would start you to think about other
1: murders he may have committed? When we got called out to the scene, Dave Snare and I went out to the scene and it was uh, early evening and to be confronted by the scene that I saw, uh, I'd never seen um, anything like it in my career, police career, since 1973 and or my time at the Homicide Squad, which was probably six or seven years by then. The injuries that were inflicted on Nikki Patterson were horrific. Some were uh, the cause of a death and some were post-mortem. So some of the injuries were of a signature, I believe, or a type of injury that um, I'd never seen and upon investigation were very rare.
0: Including the removal of the victim's breasts.
1: Uh, Yes. Yes, that's correct.
0: Murders without motives are the hardest to solve. The serial killer tends not to have a motive for the things that he commits. So when you're looking at this vicious, vile act, then you look back at other cases. How do you cross-reference? How do you start to build a picture that you may have an offender who is not motivated by any personal knowledge
1: of the victim, but is acting out of some other pathology of which you are unaware at this time? So securing the conviction for Nicky Patterson's murder um, and he got life no minimum never to be released, then we were able to then uh, think about how we'd go back in time and pinpoint murders within our state maybe the nation that he might have been involved in, particularly using the injuries that were inflicted to the victim. And they were of a particular type that, as I said, I'd never seen before at all and were shocking. So when we got the conviction, we uh, also then formed a task force, Mikado to look at the unsolved. I didn't go to task force, Mikado, but uh, Paul Scarlett went across there. Greg Huff, a a great detective at the time with Chris O'Connor, went across and uh, Mick Daly, went across as well. They then started to review all the uh, old homicides, all the unsolved homicides, where that sort of signature, if I can use that word, was in parallel with what happened with Nikki Patterson. I might add signature is a, a media word. I think what it do, is. What, what do real cops actually say? Well, similarities... Modus operandi, um and similar and methods, fact. similar facts. Yeah, it was spot on. So, signature comes from sort of. Well, it does. You know, it comes from <laughs> CSI and all all yep. the other you know American shows. But you know, it, it probably is a good it's a good word for that terminology, because it's a unique set of circumstances or injuries or uh, evidence that would be particular to that particular offender. I say one thing. It does
0: do for me is that we've seen in recent years a, a tendency to glamorise serial killers. We've seen Dexter on TV yep. and, you know, Hannibal Lecter and we've sort yep. of created a new kind of anti-hero.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a strange thing. Well, it is. Um, Peter Norris Dupass was just a... I can't even begin to understand what lurks in the, in the bowels of his mind. The absolute depravity... And the evil is just brings goosebumps to you thinking about it. So, bowels of his mind. Very good. I like that line. He's uh, one in uh, many, many, many millions. One in many millions. And uh, he's, uh, he's, uh, the crimes that he committed are just some of the most horrific crimes, uh, you know, that occurred in our state. So, and we've got other serial killers, you know, we had Paul Denyer. You know, we had uh, a few others, but at the end of the day, Dupas has been sort of with his injuries and his horrific uh, crimes against women. You know, other than homicides as well, uh, has probably stands right up there. On Dupas, he was known to police from an early age
0: for offences of violence with a sexual nature to them. You don't need to answer this, but I'll just say it. There seemed an ambivalence about him in the system as to whether he was mad or bad, which kind of allowed him to gain his freedom at a critical point, which led to the most
1: heinous events in his career, if you could call it that. What was your view, mad or bad? Um, I think that's a very good terminology, mad or bad, and sometimes you can't figure out with those crooks whether they're mad or bad. I tend to think he's probably, uh, the majority of it's uh, bad, and uh, I don't know whether there's any madness, Uh, there's cold calculated actions, but I I don't know. Because he really didn't get looked at too much um, in relation to his psychology uh, over his period of time, so... But, uh, yeah, uh, a very, very evil and bad person, I would say.
0: Yeah, obviously highly intelligent, quite charismatic, able to communicate with people and and to strategically communicate. But when you look at his actions, you look at Actus Raya, Men's Raya. yep. What does that tell you about him? Explain what those terms are first, by the way.
1: Uh, men's race is a gilly mine, and actus reus is a gilly act. So, yes, absolutely. He was cold calculated and he uh, he planned, he planned a lot of things. And, yeah, he was just a very, very, very evil person. And he was known
0: as a model prisoner while in custody, but as soon as he was released, a matter of weeks, sometimes days, he was back at it again. There was a compulsiveness to what he did. Uh, Can you see anything in his background which prepares you for his acts?
1: Uh, No, no, not really. Um, We actually spoke to his family and uh, they were uh, decent human beings. So, you know, there was none of that nurturing, I think, of his uh, intentions uh, because they were really very, very nice people. Uh, I don't know. I, I've got no explanation whatsoever and I've, I've pondered about it over the years about why he committed those acts and what provoked him or what initiated him. Absolutely no idea. I just as I go back to inherent evil in him and, you know, we moved on from Nikki Patterson and we went to the Margaret Mar murder. So Margaret Ma, when they formed uh, Task Force Mikado. That was one of their first jobs, to reinvestigate Margaret Maher. Her semi-naked body was found dumped on the side of the road in Somerton amongst some computer equipment and there was a glove located near the scene. The injuries of Margaret Maher were very similar to the injuries of Nikki Patterson and also the DNA in the glove with the new advances in technology were able to discover that it was actually Dupas's DNA. So, Paul Scarlett was the informant in that one. He charged Dupas with the murder of Margaret Marr. It went to trial. Uh, he was convicted of that and he was uh, given life, no minimum, never to be released. He appealed, and once again, he would appeal and appeal uh, on the taxpayers' money on these particular convictions. But we then moved on. To the murder of Messina Halvagas. Who was Messina Halvagas? So Messina Halvagas was a a petite Australian uh, girl with Greek heritage, out uh, in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. She went to her grandmother's grave on uh, All Saints Day, I think it was called, the first of November, nineteen ninety-seven, and uh, she was tending to her grandmother's grave at Faulkner Cemetery in the Greek Orthodox area, which was positioned around other particular um, European nationality burial places around there. There was a particular area out there which was the Greek Orthodox area.
0: And she had a habit of going to visit her grandmother's grave,
1: speaking to her grandmother, leaving flowers on this day? Absolutely, absolutely. Described as a caring uh, human being. And, uh, you know, went through and uh, did her a, a degree. I can't remember what her degree was, graduated. And I vividly remember the photograph of her in her uh, a cap and gown for her graduation that George Hal Vargas gave us. And uh, it was a very caring human being, going out to see her grandmother out at uh, the Faulkner Cemetery and doing it regularly. So, she
0: doesn't return from Faulkner Cemetery. Her fiancé contacts police.
1: What happens next? So a search is uh, conducted for missing person at that point in time, Msuna, and that um, search eventually led to a uh, uniformed police to attend at the Faulkner Cemetery early hours of the morning. I think it was about four o'clock in the morning or so, uh, and they discovered her body up near her grandmother's grave had it been dragged up into a area that was an empty plot Nearby, and that she was in there. She would, had been uh, uh, viciously attacked and stabbed, and murdered, and dragged up into that area where a body was dumped there. At this time,
0: November 1999, Peter Dupass, the serial killer, is unknown to police. He's known as a rapist and an, and an assailant. So,
1: what was the investigation? The initial steps of Messina's murder. Right. So I wasn't on the crew initially that investigated the murder of Messina. There are other fine detectives on that crew that uh, investigated that. Quite a number: Greg Half, uh, Peter Clifford. Um, Don't leave anybody out. They'll be no, no, no. I'd okay, be happy. There was also uh, Johnny Morris as well. I think. Um, old Blue Eyes used to call him. what they used to call you? The boy detective. Um, Not Kevin Bacon? No I've, no, I've got the Kevin Bacon thing. You, you look a lot like a him still. Oh.
0: But you look like a Kevin Bacon who actually joined the real police. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not one in Hollywood. Not Mystic River. <laughs> no.
1: So they actually did that initial investigation and did a whole heap of work, tireless work in relation to that murder of Messina. And unfortunately, even though with their, the, the work that they did, it remained unsolved. And why do you think that was? Because there wasn't the other connection to make? Or time had to march on until we knew that Dupass was probably a suspect here? Adam, I think you've put it. Time marched on. Um, it wasn't until, you know, April 1999 when Nikki Patterson was murdered that the whole, all the dots were joined. He was a predator. He was a violent sexual offender against women, but all the dots uh, hadn't been joined at that point in time. And myself and Paul Scarlett reinvestigated the the homicide of Messina, covering all the statements, reviewing all the statements, reviewing all the information reports and all the evidence, all the crime scene. As a result of that, we, uh, you know, we had a bit of a breakthrough. Early stages.
0: How many photos? Do you actually put the photos on the wall like in the shows, the TV shows?
1: Uh, No. Haven't got the whiteboard? Uh, We've got a whiteboard uh, and we run a whiteboard for tasks and known facts and, yeah, basically tasks the detectives. So you never go there... Standing, looking at the picture, going, "Hmm, why won't you?" <laughs> no, no, we uh, we don't <laughs> have the, we, we don't have the photographs out no. there, and we don't have lines going between all the all the associates and all the uh, and the scenes. No, we don't. How do you make people accountable in well, the process? You review what they've done. So before tasks are completed, the senior sergeant would review all those tasks and write them off. So the detective senior sergeant would be the person ultimately responsible for completing, finally locking that task down, if that makes sense.
0: So yourself and Paul Scarlett are re-investigating.
1: What was the steps of that investigation, the reinvestigation? So, as I said, we did all, we reviewed the whole case file again and we then put an application uh, together for a reward of a million dollars for any information leading to the arrests um, of uh, any of the offenders or offender involved in the murder. How well do rewards work in your experience? Well, um, I hadn't had a lot to do with them over my period of time because... I couldn't remember one while I was at the Homicide Squad uh, that had really been claimed or an application to make a claim for it. But once again, a million dollars is a lot of money and uh, the publicity that it generates and the interest it does in the particular investigation uh, is good. can also say that one of the other huge motivating uh, factors for myself and Paul to do all the work on this uh, investigation was George Vargas and his family. George had come to the uh, trial of Nikki Patterson's murder and followed that and he was a big driving force together with the rest of his family uh, that I've become friends of uh, since then. He was a big motivating factor and he's become a huge advocate for victims of crime too, George Vargas. And I think he was recognised also with a an award, uh, Queen's Birthday or the Australia Day Awards.
0: Okay, so in this reinvestigation, what jumped
1: out at you? What were the lines that you were going to follow as a result of that? Well, a couple of things is that the description given by one particular witness and a face image done by one particular witness was an absolute a photograph, really, of Peter Dupas. We had Dupas as a cemetery stalker, but we didn't have him as a murderer at a cemetery. And so, he also frequented a pub nearby? Correct. He'd been seen, people had seen him that day? I think it was the first and last, I'm not sure, I can't remember what pub it was, but anyway. You're right. Yeah. But all this is circumstantial. Correct. It's not going to get you over the line. What did you need? So we had the face image. We've had his grandfather buried at the cemetery, which he denied he'd ever been to, the cemetery. We had all these other bits and pieces. We had a circumstantial case, but we we were close, but no cigar. What we needed was... And we were advised by the director uh, of the Office of Public Prosecution at the time and also the coroner, if we had more evidence and we gained more evidence and it would be reviewed again. So we pushed the reward out. And we did get further witnesses come forward in relation to seeing you pass at the cemetery and they made statements and uh, they gave evidence as well at the trial. But to Paul Scarlett's absolute tenaciousness, we chased down all the other people that Du Pass had associated with while he was in jail. And we went through other criminals um, that were in there and other people that were doing time and we went and spoke to them and it eventually uh, it led us to Andrew Fraser. Who was Andrew Fraser? Andrew Fraser at that time was doing time imprisonment down at Fulham Prison for drug trafficking. Uh, he'd been a high-profile lawyer and Paul Scarlett uh, went down and spoke to him one-on-one, and as a result of that, we got the breakthrough. What did he tell Paul? He told Paul that basically uh, the due pass had confessed to him, and he'd done a, a, a pantomime of, stole style of a pantomime of him showing how that he sort of stabbed Messina and mentioned Messina's work. He also indicated that he'd left no forensics at the scene, which was correct. And there was more. There seemed to be
0: a quite a relationship between Fraser and Dupas in jail. How much do you know about that?
1: Oh, my recollection, I think when he got the brief for Margaret Marr, I think uh, Andrew was giving, uh, well, had read the brief and they were discussing the brief of evidence uh, against him. So there was a little bit of rapport happening there. also I tend to think there was a bit of gardening going on and out there. They were both keen gardeners and, uh, yeah, so that rapport was... Uh, Built And uh, as a result of that, Fraser made a statement to us. Andrew made a statement to us, that one on the brief. And as a result of that, the director of the Office of Public Prosecutions reviewed it and um, he was uh, arraigned on the murder of Missoni Helvagas. You get back to the office after getting Fraser's confession. I'm
0: sure the first question would be, how is Fraser's credit? He's a convicted drug trafficker. He's a defence lawyer not the most popular character in police circles, I don't think. How did you corroborate his evidence to the standard where you could take it to court?
1: Well, you know, things like he indicated how he stabbed Messina. He indicated uh, where he came from, I think, how he approached her. He also indicated uh, there were no forensics left at the scene. So, you know, there was a degree of corroboration. So it was then up to Fraser to give evidence Was it the case that Fraser was able to
0: tell you things about the murder of Messina that only the killer would know? Yes, I would say,
1: yes, yep, you're quite right there. Yep, absolutely. What were those? Well, they were the things, like no forensics left at the scene, uh, how he approached Messina, um, how he attacked Messina and the particular pantomime that he did and also uh, the statement he made were in line with what the killer would have known at the scene.
0: Uh, There was obviously a lot of public comment about Fraser stepping forward, particularly in light of a million-dollar reward. How confident were you that you could get through the break with him and get him before a jury and survive
1: the cross-examination? I guess being a lawyer, that was an advantage. Yes, yes and yes. I agree with that. Um, I had a rapport with Andrew and that he was our witness and we were going to present him. And it was up to him to give his evidence at the trial. And may I say that when he did give evidence, it was tenaciously cross-examined over an extended period of time. Uh, and as a result of that, the jury came back on the first trial and um, convicted DuPass. He appeals. The appeal is upheld on conviction. How does that feel? So he appeals on two grounds. He appeals on I'm so notorious. Uh, I'm Tony Mockbell. I can't get a fair trial. Um, You know, I'm so notorious. um, And also there was grounds in relation to eyewitness identification, in relation to what was mentioned at the trial uh, and some technical issues. So we went up to the High Court, uh, Paul Scarlan and I went to the High Court in Canberra, where in fact it was thrashed out in front of the full bench of the High Court. And as a result of that, I think one ground was dismissed and the other ground was sent back to retrying. So we batted up again. And we retried him, we got all the witnesses back again, we got Andrew Fraser back again, Uh, he was tenaciously again cross-examined, the jury went out and the jury came back uh, after a bit more of an extended period and convicted Dupas of the murder of Messina.
0: You make it all sound like a fait accompli now, Mm. but back then how sure were you that
1: the the second jury would actually convict? Well, uh, we always hope. We always hope that, you know, we prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt uh, and the jury convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, I was convinced that we, we proved it beyond a reasonable doubt, but there's always a chance the jury won't convict. That's the good and the bad of the jury system. Uh, and, you know, I'd been to the Supreme Court on, you know, 150 occasions. So, you know, I'd... I'd lived through the twists and turns of the jury system uh, and the judge and jury system, uh, and it works. But they came back and they convicted him for a second time. But he appealed again. And that appeal, once again, took another six to nine months. I'm only, once again, it was quashed and he his sentence was reaffirmed, life no minimum, never to be released. Times three? Times three. But the story doesn't end there. Why do we do it? We do it because of the victims and the victims' families. How many more? Well, do you think? I say three. There's Kathleen Downs, and uh, that matter went to the uh, coroner's court and uh, then ended up at the Supreme Court, where I think there's been a discontinuance for certain matters of that particular matter. There's Renita Brunton, who was murdered in a secondhand clothing store in uh, Sunbury. Uh, The injuries of Renita are very, very similar to the other injuries of the other victims. And last but not least, there was uh, 1984 and it was the murder at the Rye Back Beach of Helen McMahon.
0: And that pushes the beginning of his career back a year earlier than we now know because 1985 he first comes to notice.
1: But you say he was already up to it a year earlier. Well, he started his um, evil career, you know, uh, at the age of 15, 16 by um, indecently assaulting uh, and uh, trying to uh, stab a neighbour over the road, uh, and it all went downhill from there. You know, rapes and assaults and sexual assaults and a whole lot, but he did decades in jail. I guess, to play devil's advocate, these are long,
0: often unavailing cold case investigations, do pass appeals uh, it's a long drawn-out process no guarantees what is the public interest or the interest whatever whichever you want to personal public in pursuing these cold cases now
1: I think back and I picture in my mind of the uh, crocodile with the frog in its mouth and the frog with a caption out of the side of it saying never give up you think it's all over you can't do anything more no and i think the vast majority of or all homicide detectives have that sort of approach and that sort of thing in their in their being that they will they will not stop and they will chase everything down every burrow and they will do everything they can within their power to get a result for the victims family and to solve that unsolved crime now hollywood kevin
0: bacon detective in the last reel of the film, would go to jail, see Peter Dupass, appeal to his humanity or some, some shred of remorse that he might have and he'd unlock the confessions. What would non-Hollywood Jeff Ma like to say to Peter
1: Dupass, what, what possible line could you use to, to move that stone? Well, Peter, you're doing three triple lives. You're never going to see the light of day, freedom day, do the right thing and give up the other... Murders that you've committed. Do the right thing by the victims' uh, family. Do the right thing by the murdered victims, and you've got nothing to lose now. Just give us, give those victims' family a glimmer of hope that we can, we can solve those jobs. Uh, Derek Ernest Percy was given the same opportunity by Wayne Newman on his
0: deathbed, and he didn't avail himself of it. Dupas hasn't so far. Do you think that there's an element of power in not giving? the confession, even unto death?
1: I think you paraphrased it very well. I think there is. That's the only power he can exercise now. He's in jail. I believe he makes some really nice um, garden furniture and um, additions out there. He's a pretty good woodworker, Peter. But other than that, he's got to serve the rest of his life in jail. The only power he really has now is the power of withholding. But you know, once again, I you know I plead to him uh, if he's got any humanity whatsoever to uh, give up the other uh, murders that he's committed.
0: Do you still give him any credit for humanity?
1: Um, uh, it's not
0: merely a biological qualification. No, it's
1: not. Um, uh, there may be a glimmer. I don't know. I don't know. I hope there's a glimmer, particularly for the victims. I found remarkable about Dupass. While in Pentridge,
0: he manages to create a relationship with a prison nurse who he then marries. What does that say about his character or I guess the environment in Pentridge that creates these Stockholm Syndrome type
1: relationships? Uh, that was bizarre to me, bizarre. And yes, he had other girlfriends. And the other girlfriends that we spoke to and particularly the last, girlfriend before his arrest, had absolutely no idea whatsoever about any of this and about the evilness that hid in his mind, absolutely no idea, which shows how he could shut it away, he could put it away, you know, he could bring it out again and then put it away. Which goes to the point about his humanity,
0: that light somewhere in his mind he has mercy, compassion, can show love. And you'd hope that a future homicide detective with some evidence would go back to him and deliver closure for more families.
1: I agree. Adam, I agree 100%. And I think what'll happen is down the track, they will, they will go back to him. Whether he wants to talk to us or not is another thing, but they will go back to him without a doubt. Would you want to go back? I don't think he likes me too much. Uh, uh, no, I probably not. I I think I've run my race on that. Uh, I'll leave it for the younger detectives.
0: Homicide investigation
1: is not a popularity contest. No, it's not at all. Now this was almost your last case, wasn't it? Um, I ran the homicide squad on investigations till two thousand and nine, where we had Black Saturday. I uh, was uh, deployed in Black Saturday to the Phoenix Task Force investigation the one hundred and seventy three. Uh, people uh, in Victoria tragically killed by the bushfire. Went to the Arson explosive Squad, uh, went to 2016 and um, oh, ran um, the Gallium Task Force, which was the investigation into the prison rights at uh, Ravenhall. Uh, that was about my last job and then I exited stage left uh, and, uh, yeah. But not quite. Not quite. Came because... <laughs> back and, you know, teaching detectives, doing a couple of other things. Uh, Yeah, I do enjoy giving back to the job. Obviously, detective work has changed a lot with technology and DNA and
0: advances in psychology and all kinds of things. But I'm sure there are probably some underlying principles of detection that are universal. What do you tell
1: the recruits, the would-be detectives out at the academy? I say never give up, never give up. Never assume anything. Check all the facts make sure that you've checked the facts and you are happy with what you've got. Tenacious, thoroughness and um, never give up and always think about the victim's family that, that's, and the victim that spurs you want.
0: Thank you for being on Real Crime Australia Detectives and thank you for your service to the community. Thank you. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolich. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Additional editing by Kelly Falston. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producers Jack Shand and Oscar Gordon. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.